0: So, I'm a 25 year old out of state investor based out of the Bay Area, but I have about 40 units out of state, Ohio, Georgia, and South Carolina.
1: Welcome to the Action Academy podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The
0: flags of freedom fly. Freedom fly.
1: Choose to do what you want, what you want, with who you want, with who you want, when you want, when you want, with another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. All right, we are good.
0: Third time's a charm.
1: Yes, solely after many technical difficulties. You and I are here together. What is up?
0: We're here and we're excited.
1: Finally. It's finally time to make magic happen. Sometimes yeah. it just takes a bit of time. There's a process to it.
0: We're just warming up.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so I'm excited to have you on the show. I've been following you in your brand and your story, and you have so much value to offer in so many different stages and levels of the investing journey. And a lot of people see these people on podcasts that have maybe been investing for 20, 30, 40 years. And you're like, okay, obviously you started investing after 08, and you rode this last decade up. And so good for you guys. But now, you know, the interest rates are different. Post-COVID, it's different. And so maybe you can use that as an excuse. But then sometimes we have people like you come on, where you're like, yeah, let's take that excuse and throw it out the window. So Soli, please introduce yourself to the audience. Who is Soli?
0: Hi, everyone. So I'm a 25-year-old out-of-state investor based out of the Bay Area, but I have about 40 units out of state, Ohio, Georgia, and South Carolina. You might know me on Instagram as lattes and Lizas. That is my alter ego. And I like to just share ups and downs, the real life adventures of a young person trying to get started in real estate. Because I started back in 2020 during the pandemic, and it's been a wild ride to say the least over the last three years.
1: Yeah, so first and foremost, I want to start with mindset. We'll get into your journey and each dissecting each step of this process throughout. But first and foremost, like you went from 0 to 40 units in just a handful of years. What made you decide to go that route and make you believe that you could do it and have the confidence and the mindset to be able to handle that as opposed to doing what was traditionally the path which is buy a house, two houses, four houses, the stack method.
0: Yeah, I guess when I go into things, I just go 100, 1000% in. But it all starts with the first one, right? Like I didn't buy my first property thinking that I was going to buy 40 in three years. I remember I went back to my original Instagram post where I was setting some goals for myself. And my goal was to buy one property in year one two properties in year two, like three properties in year three, which would basically get me to about 45 by the time I was 30, which was like eight years from when I was 22. And that's how I went into it. To me, those felt like really big, scary goals. And I never would have imagined that I would have you know, built up such a big portfolio so young. It was just one step in front of the other saying yes to opportunities that came up, opening myself up to things that were new and scary and just figuring out how to do it along the way.
1: I love that. So it's funny because a lot of people are stuck in analysis paralysis, right? And they're wondering what to pick. They're like, oh my God, I don't know if I want to go this direction or this direction. I don't know if I want to do multifamily, Airbnb, self-storage. And I tell them, it doesn't matter what you pick. It matters that you pick, right? Yep. And you just get started with square one because most of the time, you don't even make money on that first deal. So let's go back to solely 2020 what were you doing for your job and what made you start investing in real estate and even pursue financial freedom whatsoever?
0: Yeah, so in 2020, I was a senior in college and I was also working as a commercial real estate broker leasing office space. So I got a job pretty young. I just, I needed money when I was in college. And so at sophomore year, I pretty much was working full-time as a commercial real estate broker. But when the pandemic hit, I was leasing office space at a time when nobody wanted office space at all. And I just thought to myself, like, okay, I'm going into a fully commission-based job. I could make $0 for the next whoever long, like however long it's going to last. And I have to start building up some kind of something coming in so that if I didn't make any money from my day job... I would have be able to pay my rent and buy groceries. So that's kind of how I really got more serious about real estate investing and said, if there's ever a time to focus on buying real estate, it is now when the world has shut down from the pandemic, school shut down, work shut down, and I have time to focus the next few months to actually buy that rental property.
1: There was a moment where you were working in your commercial brokerage and you saw a check and it changed everything for you. Walk us through this process because this is so important when it comes to mindset and perception of different levels of wealth,
0: yeah. so I grew up in a small town. It's right south of San Francisco. So you would think that Silicon Valley is super wealthy, but it was just a really small, like beach town where no one really did like much of anything. And so to me, like rich, wealthy, like my parents, my dad's from an immigrant from the Philippines. My mom's, like a violinist. and, A lot of money was like $100,000. If you made $100,000, you've made it. And then I went to school. I went to college in the Silicon Valley. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of wealth over here. And I started working in an office, a brokerage office, where basically people were just facilitating office leasing deals. And my boss at the time, I saw him writing. He was talking to his accountant and writing down how much he owed in taxes that year and what his tax rate was. It ended up working out till he made $3 million in one year just being an office broker. And it just broke my frame of reference of what a lot of money meant. To him, $3 million was the normal. I started asking people in the office, like, this is probably not what you're supposed to do, but like, how much money do you make? <laughs> and you can tell because your your title on your, Business card relates to how much money you've made every year for the past three years. So if you're a senior director, you've made three to seven hundred dollars per year. If you're like an executive managing director, you've made three million dollars for the past seven years and so on. So you can figure out how much people make depending on what their title is in the company. And I was like, no way, you made half a million dollars and you're 23. It just changed everything for me and it just redefined what a lot of money meant.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because we talk about different levels of identity, right? So it's just like when it comes to real estate, like I think the simple part of real estate is the actual sticks and bricks and doing the numbers and the acquisition process and all of that. The hard part is assuming that next level identity of who do I need to become in order to do this? So for you, you're like, Who do I need to become? Who does solely need to become? What version of me needs to die and what version of me needs to be born to be this big multifamily investor, right? Or to get up to 100 units or plus. And so I always say that immersion is the best way to yield conversion. So if you are listening to this, guys, and you're in a small town or you're in a small circle and you can't figure out, you know, how to handle large amounts of money, you need to immerse yourself with other people that are making that much money. And then it will become the norm to you, right?
0: I think the other thing though, is that I then started surrounding myself with real estate investors. And I Mm -hmm. then realized that brokers were trading time for money. You got Mm -hmm. back to January 1st and you were back on that wheel, hoping that you would make commissions. And if you didn't, then you would make $0 that year. And so then when I started hanging out with real estate investors who were like, I'm making 20, 30, 40, $50,000 per month, regardless of if I work today or don't work today, it was like the next frame of reference of, yeah. okay, brokerage is great. You can make a lot of money, but like, how much sweeter would it be if I knew that my assets were growing for me, they're bringing in income, regardless of showing up for work?
1: Yeah. And it's funny because I had the opposite happen to me in my corporate job. Whereas you were seeing the dollar signs of what was possible. I was looking and seeing what my ceiling was. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I tell people, look at your boss's boss. Are they making what you want to make? And also, do they live a lifestyle that you aspire to live? Yeah. And that's a whole other can of worms is like the commercial broker lifestyle. So it's like kind of work yeah. hard, play hard. Yeah, it's, it's
0: pretty sweet. It's it's,
1: yeah, it's pretty sweet, but it's also at the grand scheme of things. It's, yeah. For me, I was just like, man, I want to be able to have time to do what I want, when I want with who I want. And when yeah. you're in that role, man, you're on 24 seven. So walk us through yeah. this first purchase. You hang out with these investors, you're exposed to lo- large levels of wealth. So you're you see what's possible you start hanging out with these investors and you're like, okay, cool. I want the large levels of wealth, but I also want passivity. So walk us through that first acquisition and how things started to scale from there.
0: Yeah. So I didn't know very many investors near me, which a lot of people use as an excuse. There's no meetups near me. People are oh, so man, full, can't do Like it. It's so Right. And so I actually built my community online. There's millions of investors on Instagram. And I guess it was a blessing at the time that the pandemic was happening and we couldn't hang out with our friends anyways. And so why not make a full new friend group online? So all the people I hung out with were just, they were they wanted me to succeed. They wanted me to take action. They wanted me to fail because I would learn. And that's kind of how I, I surrounded myself with people who were successful, not in person, but just people I met online and became friends with. So I bought my first property in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was $98,000. And it definitely wasn't easy. I put in two offers thinking that I'm not going to get under contract. And then I got under contract and I did not have anything figured out. I didn't even have a pre-approval. Like I didn't have a contractor. I didn't have a property manager. But honestly, there's no better way to learn than to put your feet to the fire and be like, I'm under contract. I have 30 days to figure this out. Let's go. And that's kind of what I did. And I blocked the whole thing online too.
1: I think that's super interesting and a point that I don't want to gloss over that I feel like a lot of shows would just skip over this part. But ironically, I feel that this is one of the most important parts and that's documenting your journey. Right, Mm -hmm. So it's just like all people see and what people are used to before was just the highlight reel finish at the Mm -hmm. end. And you're like, I'm a multimillionaire. I've got all this stuff. I've got all these units. Look at my 3000 doors. But another person I think that does a great job at this was an investor girl, Brittany Arneson. Yes. Yep. So she documented her like painting the houses, doing the renovations, doing the construction, and you documented your journey, which is like being in the arena, which I love so mm-hmm. much. And you were sharing your failures along with your wins. Can you talk about the importance of sharing the L's along with the W's?
0: Yeah, no, I think it builds a lot of trust and just authenticity with your audience too. No one likes to see like win after highlight reel because we're like, we all know that's not real. There's some real hardships behind all of those wins and that's what people want to see. And so I started my Instagram before I even had a rental property at all. And people are always shocked. They're like, what? But I just put it out into the universe and I found it to be a lot of personal accountability as well. It's like I told my 500 followers, I was gonna do it. And so I wanted to show up for them and buy that first rental property. So there was that, there was the whole like my audience taught me a lot when I was there's people who remember being there like not that long ago. And they want to see young and hungry people who are actually doing the hard things and help them out. And so when I was first starting it, I'd jump on calls with people and be like, How do I navigate this contractor situation and this and that? And it was really helpful for being able to troubleshoot certain things in the early days of investing that really helped me be successful later on. Plus it helped me build my brand. Everyone wants to wait until they're successful and they have a story to tell. But I honestly think the best story is your early days and having people actually watch you. Like I slept on the floor. It was terrible. I remember one of my friends from Cincinnati walk in with her. She, I met her we Instagram friends. And I was like, look at where I'm staying. And it was like a construction floor with like nails sticking up out of it on like a tiny, thin little mattress. And she's like, are you okay? (laughs) And I was like, I'm good. (laughs) And so that's, it's the good old days. Like it was fun. And that's where a lot of credibility was built with my brand.
1: A lot of people spend so much time waiting for that moment where they feel like they've made it. And then I'll share, then I'll Mm -hmm. give back. It's the same thing I feel as when people are saying, when I'm a millionaire, I'm going to donate so much money but the reality is, if you're not donating $100, what makes you think you're going to donate 100000 So it's like, for new people listening to the show, I've shared this story before, but there was a mentor of mine that convinced me to start the podcast. And I didn't want to start the podcast until I had 100 units. And that was just a random right. thought in my head. And then I said, what value do I have to offer to others until I reach this random point of success? And he goes, oh, wow, that's very selfish. And I was like, selfish? What do you mean? And he goes... So you're denying other people access to information purely based off of your own ego and fear of rejection. Mm. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Reframe, right? And you're like, yeah, all right. So it's just because of how I'm afraid of how I may be perceived, I'm gonna mm-hmm. deny everyone access to the
0: journey. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I would also say that the best thing is that people have trouble learning from people who are ten, 20 steps ahead of them. And mm-hmm. so if you're one or two steps ahead of them, then you're wildly more relatable to someone who is one step behind you. And so I think that people really enjoy learning from people who are just a few steps ahead. And if you can provide, I put in an offer, I miss that offer. What can I teach my audience about this? Because everything you are doing, you're learning. You just have to turn it into a lesson for somebody else.
1: What's been your experience with failure throughout this process? How did you experience failure in the beginning? And now how do you experience failure today? What are the differences?
0: A lot. Too much. <laughs> I think one of the tough parts, I went hard the first year. I think I bought like 25 units in one year. All value add. It was in, It's a totally new industry for me. Although I was working in commercial real estate, completely different from residential real estate, especially mm-hmm. value add properties where you're doing a lot of construction. And so I would say a lot of my early, really difficult failures had to do with trying to learn how to renovate properties from 2,500 miles away with no background in construction. I don't know, like what is drywall or is it sheetrock? Who knows? And, And I'm used to like, I don't know, I'm not used to being like so terrible at things. And so it's a hard like mental struggle to just be like, I'm at zero. I know Amy Porterfield, who you interviewed, always talks about the capacity for zero. Can you start over again? Can you be trash at something? And that was me. I was so trash at renovations and I had to learn and I made a lot of really expensive mistakes. So I think that's what a lot of failure looks like for me is scaling too fast, like trying to learn how to run a business because I went to business school. They didn't teach you how to run a business at business school. Ironically. Um, I know. So it was just a lot of like unknowns. Like I don't know how to do it. I'm going to be honest and say, I don't know how to do it. And I'm going to try to find the right people to help me get through a lot of these growing pains in business. And I would say like failure looks very similar today because I constantly am trying to throw myself into arenas where I know nothing. I'm bad at it. It's not so much in real estate anymore, but I think we talked about like how I'm building an out-of-state investor academy, and that's a whole new world of building a community and building a different kind of business. And so I still feel like I don't know how to be a great leader. I don't know how to run a hundred million-dollar business. Who knows? But it's a lot of that, just like getting through the uncertainty and trying to build a path forward and just taking one step ahead. And every day, I still fail.
1: I love that. The biggest pivot for me with failure has been in the beginning, it's like, I would be okay with it. I'd say, okay, I'm failing here, but one day, not so much. What I didn't learn and what I didn't realize is that the problems never go away. They just look different and they're just bigger. So when I reframed everything from like avoiding problems to saying, Hey, like the problems I have today are what I prayed for five years ago. It's just. It's bigger problems, which is bigger paychecks, right? So it's, I have friends where it's, so for me, for one of my rentals, maybe they flood because of water heater leaks, right? But then maybe Mm -hmm. one of my friends that has hundreds of units and thousands of doors, they have an apartment complex burned down. Now they have to do insurance claims. So the problems never go away. It's just your emotional capacity to deal with the problems and ride the waves. That's what changes. So my, my coach, I joke with him and I say, I hire him to teach me how to surf, like surf the waves. I
0: like that. No, that's so true. It's really true.
1: So walk us through. Okay. You buy your first house. How do you scale to 25 doors in this first year? What the heck happened? What switch did you flip? Where you're like, Oh, okay, this is cool. I've got this.
0: I think it that was. That's a good question. Now I look back, I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, how who was I back then that I just scaled so fast? But I'm just a big advocate of you know they What's the saying? It's like, it's not luck. It's like preparation and opportunity. Yeah, something like that or other. And so I just said yes when the opportunity when the doors opened. I was like, let's do it. And their relationships, like I, I found a partner who I had known for years, like five six years who was also investing in real estate. And I was like, do you want to invest with me? Kind of show me the ropes. And so we partnered up and we bought like 25 units together. And that was a big part of it. it was like partnerships. And then I learned how to raise private money, which a lot of people think that they're limited to how much money they have in their bank account to invest. And on my second deal, I really tapped into, first of all, it was my friends and family money. My mom reached out and was like, honey, I saw you on Instagram. I'm so proud of you. Can I invest in your next deal? And I was like, what? What? One, didn't know she had money. Two, I could use other people's money. And it can be a win-win for her. So she makes money... I get to scale my portfolio, like what a beautiful gift to be able to give your friends and family members. And so once I unlocked that, it was a big mindset shift. I could use other people's money to grow my portfolio, and that's usually people's biggest hindrance is I can't scale because I don't have capital. So I tapped into like 5 or 6 million dollars of capital from my Instagram following actually by building a lot of that credibility through my personal brand and that kind of just skyrocketed my portfolio.
1: Yeah, it's funny because that's always the biggest hang up is the lack of capital, right? But it, the reality is if you're either the money, the knowledge, or the hustle. Right. So right. if you're if you can find the deals and you can bring the deals and get them under contract, then you've got all the capital in the world because there's millions of people with millions of dollars that do not want to door knock, cold call, send mailers, whatever have you. So that's why they're rich. They're like they're focusing on other stuff. So you are the knowledge and the hustle in these deals. So how did you market? How did you find these deals? That were I'm assuming they were off market or were they on the MLS?
0: Combination. So like my second deal was on loopnet.com, which is just a I don't know, it's like a commercial party yeah. like yeah, just a random website that people don't usually market on. My th- Third property was on the market. My fourth, we cold called. So it was just a random cold call. The fifth was an agent, what's it called pocket listing. And so a lot of the deals in the first year came from a combination of those three things, like good relationships with agents. And if you are a good buyer and you perform, then they're gonna bring deals to you because they know that you're going to perform as a good buyer. The cold calling and the like, direct-to-seller outreach is definitely a lot harder But coming as a commercial real estate broker, our job a lot of the time was to cold call tenants. Mm -hmm. So it really was not that hard to cold call owners and just be like, hey, any chance you'd be willing to sell? And the worst case scenario, we get hung up on just like, we do at our day job every day. So it wasn't so bad. And then market MLS deals. Honestly, there's a ton of deals on the MLS right now, especially we've been buying a lot of deals because there's people who whose houses are just sitting for 60 plus days and they're not getting the types of offers that they want because their prices, their house is overpriced. And so we do buy a lot of also houses off the MLS just by making very competitive offers and tracking how many days on market they've been staying on the market.
1: So what was your buy box? Were you buying multifamily or were you buying single family, just large volume?
0: Whatever came at me. And so it was like, my first property was single family. Next one was a triplex. Next one was single family. And then we ramped up to five units and then a 10 unit building. And so the 10 unit building is the biggest building I own directly. I've also done like a 64 unit syndication, but I don't count that in my units. And so I would say it's a spattering. I don't, I would say single family to 10 unit is a sweet spot right now.
1: Okay. So let's talk about that for a second because some people say, oh, I've got 3,000 doors and really they own 20, <laughs> 27 bathrooms in Boise. So, yeah. So, walk through. So, what is like the ownership split? So, what the units that you're saying are these ones that you own like just with some private money? And then for this indication, were you like the GP for you, the GP, or are you like an LP? What walk us through like the portfolio breakdown?
0: Yeah. So, I own 25, I own four units, 100% me. I own about 20 to 21-ish units, 50-50 with that first partner. And then we ended Sick. up finding another partner who owns a construction company and a property management company, which is really awesome. And so the balance of the property is 10 or 15, are owned 33% by me. But I do significantly less work in the partnership, which I love. It's I get a smaller piece of the pie, but it's a much bigger pie.
1: Yeah. That's so much better. So then... Yeah. So then this 64 unit comes across your desk. What is this? How are you entertaining this? How are you involved with the 64? What is your thought process going into this? You're like, okay, is it about the same or is it a bit different?
0: So I think it's always finding opportunities and saying yes, it's just been what I've done in the past few years. Mm And that one specifically, I met a GP at a conference and kind of just throw, I'm always like, let's just throw it out there. And if they grab onto it, great. So I was like, if you ever need help raising capital, let me know. (laughs) And it's not, if they say no, it's no loss to me. But surprisingly, she was like, yeah, we have a 64 unit that like we need to raise capital for. And we'll give you like 30% of the GP portion. And so I was like, great. It's not at this point in my career. This was last year. I was I'm very experienced with raising capital and I have a big audience. And so it's not too difficult. And so I just raised money for the syndication and I own 30% of the GP, which owns 30% of the building. And then I also invest in the LP side.
1: Awesome. So let's, what well, let's, use this as an example really quickly. Let's dive deep into how to properly raise capital, especially from social media audience, because there are certain funds that you can do this with and certain funds that you can't. So there's a lot of of ways to go wrong. So let's give some advice for people that are listening that are maybe like, oh, I've got some people on my social media that I can raise capital from to do this. I want to go re- reach out to friends, to family, to raise private money. Let's have a little masterclass really quickly about how to do this the correct way.
0: Yeah. So when you're giving away equity for a passive investment, that's where it gets you know a little shaky. You're going to probably need to... Yes. You're going to, that's the right word. You're probably going to want an SEC lawyer. You're probably going to have to go through different structures, pay a lot of money for paperwork. But when you're raising it for debt, so you're literally looking for a private lender who is just getting a fixed return on their money and they have no active part in the project at all, that's not SEC regulated. It's more of the equity space that you want to be really careful about, not the debt side.
1: Yeah. And what are the terms? Is it 506B and 506C?
0: Yeah, so there's a friends and family round, and then there's like a advertising round. I'm honestly not the best versed person on syndications. I've only done one, but depending on what class you're in, you can either just market to friends and family who that you've already had relationships with, and the other one, I think it's the C one, you can advertise like widely on social media. You can put a commercial out there. You can do whatever you want. They're just different. They're different classes. One of them is more expensive than the other. There's different paperwork, that sort of thing. Yeah. uh, Yeah. We were friends and family around. So I didn't advertise actually on social media. I kind of just reached out to people who I've had relationships with at the time. But if you're raising debt, which is honestly what I mostly do for my personal projects, it's like using a hard money loan. But Mm -hmm. instead of using a hard money company, you're just using an individual. And I think it's so much better because you're direct to the person who's actually lending you the money, where if you're using a hard money lender, they're lending out someone else's money. And so they have different processes in place. They're going to upcharge you tons of fees because they need to make money somehow. So basically with private lending, you're just cutting right through that intermediary and you're getting direct to the person actually lending their money.
1: I love this. And so I think a key point to make on this is that you're doing it in the DMs, right? So you're not posting like publicly and saying, hey guys, I'm raising money for this thing because then that's when it gets a little dicey with the regulations and everything. Because the 506C is like what Brandon Turner does for accredited investors. So we're talking about sophisticated investors that technically have no designation. Is anyone can technically be sophisticated. So if, if somebody's listening to this right now and they go, Oh my God, Soli, I haven't thought about this before. I haven't listened to any of Brian's podcasts before. Where he's talked about this over and yeah. over and over again. Today's the day. I want to go reach out to my uncle that I know has like $2 million. Yeah. So what agreements need to be in place? Let's walk through an actual technical process here. So you reach out to Uncle Rick's got five six dollars $600,000 of cash that he wants to invest in your deal. What paperwork and everything do you need to send to Uncle Rick? What does this conversation and process look like yeah. to get him in your deal? And then talk about like the preferred returns and how to position it as well.
0: So first, I would say you should casually over the couple of weeks, tell Uncle Rick that you're a real estate investor. I think a lot of people forget to just casually tell people about what All they're the time. doing. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. And, and people, it's, it's more of like an identity thing. And so when they say, what's going on, Um, I'm working as a nurse and not, hey, I'm investing in real estate. Let me to show you what I've done, it's more of a warm up. We just want to warm them up to the idea that you're a real estate investor and they know what you're doing, so it's not just like a cold sell. And so, a warm up, we're just getting them comfortable. And then, when you're actually ready to like present, I personally, I know this is maybe a little formal, like to use a presentation because I find that it comes off as okay, this girl prepared. And so, an idea I gave it to my mom the first time I actually have it on my website for free. You can download it, it's a Canva template. And so it basically outlines this is my business. This is the market where I invest in. You're building credibility that you actually know what you're talking about. These are my past deals. And this is the deal that I'm actually have under contract that I would love for you to land on. And so terms-wise, it's going to vary per what the deal is and what you need. But how I typically do it, it's usually for a burr property. So it's a short turnaround time or like a flip. Mm-hmm. And so I typically ask for 100% of the acquisition and 100% of the oh, renovation. The yep. So it's fully funded, right? Interest rate-wise, It's going to also depend. I've heard people get crazy rates, but mine tend to be from like 8 to 11%, 8 to 12%, kind of in line with hard money rates. Then you also have to figure out when you're paying people. So I know a lot of people pay their private lenders monthly, but I like to pay them at the end of the term because it helps me manage my cash flow a little bit better. I don't have to carry 20 notes with. $1,000 each where I'm paying $20,000 a month, I can just delay that till the end of the term and get them paid out on a lump sum. So that's generally like terms-wise what it looks like. Security-wise, if they were to agree to invest in your deal, then there's a couple ways to do it. The first thing you'll probably need, one, go find an attorney, right? If you have questions, Don't listen to us on a podcast. Go talk to an attorney. They're going to give you all the right documents. We're not attorneys, especially if you're investing at a state. If, say, I'm in Georgia, go find an attorney in Georgia to help you, not where you live personally. Okay, so first document is a promissory note. So the promissory note is basically just the terms of the agreement. This is the interest rate. This is the amount, that sort of thing. The next thing is the actual like securitization. So there's a couple different ways to do it. You can give a personal guarantee, which means that, If you ever default, they can sue you. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you have some assets to back that. The other way you can do it, which is how I typically do it, is a mortgage. And so the mortgage ties that loan to the asset itself so that if you were to default, they would then get the property. And depending on what state you're in, sometimes it's called a deed of trust. Very similar concept though. And so those are like really the two documents that you're going to need a, or I guess three options, promissory note, personal guarantee and mortgage slash date of trust.
1: Yeah, guys. And when you're researching, this is not the type of stuff that you want to skim on. So some of you guys may be like, oh, I'm going to go get the free template that I can find on chat GPT or something. Do not do that. Go to a local like real estate specific attorney. You can find it. It's not going to be expensive, but I'll tell you what is expensive. Cheap. Cheap is always expensive (laughs) and you do not. I've seen so many JV agreements go south, go sideways because there's been a lack of like a clause that they Mm -hmm. didn't know about. The partnership was like, there's some shady stuff thrown in there at the last second. The equity splits and the payouts and the earnouts weren't Mm -hmm. what they were supposed to be. So there's a lot of different ways this can go wrong. It's not your job to look at this. It's the attorney. Get your freaking attorney. And yeah, and most of the private money that I see is like that first position against the asset itself. Instead right. of, I'd probably like try to lean away from a PG as much as possible, like the personal guarantee and just throw it on the asset and <laughs> say, okay, yeah.
0: cool. here's the I house. I try. So the only reason why personal guarantees come up sometimes is because if you're also raising 100% of the renovation amount... Sometimes people are like, great, I will take the mortgage on the property, but I want a personal guarantee on the renovation portion. And I feel like that's sometimes a fair ask fair. because mm-hmm. yeah, because it's like the asset value doesn't cover their full loan. And so I, honestly, there's the fun part about private money and maybe the scary part for a lot of people is everything is negotiable. It just depends on what's good for your deal and what works for the lender and the conversation of what can you do to make both parties win.
1: Exactly. So for all of your deals, since you're doing the private money, I'm assuming you're trying to do a BRRRR situation with all of them?
0: Or flips. Yeah. So mostly burs and flips for those ones. And you can do it for a bigger multifamily too. You're just going to have to find lenders that value add properties. Because again, if you have no exit strategy, there's no way to pay them back. And so if you're pushing value through multifamilies, you just need a longer lead time. So if you have a year or two years on your loan, then it gives you enough time to actually reposition and refinance.
1: Yeah, and that's the funny thing with multi-families, like it just all the money, especially in the larger multifamilies made in the exit, right? When you like finish mm-hmm. the property and then you're leaving, that's where the actual money is made. But it's funny because I make videos about this exact process. Here's the Burr process. The that's the fastest way to become a millionaire. I was like, with none of your own money, you can do this. And then everyone yeah. comes in the comments with pitchforks, and they're like, Oh, the small loan of a hundred million dollars from friends and family. I'm like, bro, you guys just are not networking or doing Anything. Yeah. Like people just shut it down because they think it's impossible from the get-go. But thankfully, not the listeners to this podcast. They're all gonna go raise millions of
0: dollars. (laughs) You just have to have conversations. And I think that people would rather say that it's not possible than put themselves in an uncomfortable situation to potentially be turned down by somebody.
1: Yeah, the fear of the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, and also like just the fear of Coming off as being annoying. Like I remember Brandon Turner had a fear of raising capital originally because he was afraid mm. of being that person that's going and asking for money, but you're not asking for money. You're presenting a business opportunity for both right. of you in. Fine.
0: It's a big yeah. mindset shift.
1: So, what? So now we're at 40, 40 units. So, what's the cash flow on that look like? Because you were able to leave your job, correct? Or are you still a broker?
0: No, I left after 15 months of investing. So, I quit very quickly. And so 10 of those 40 are actually going to be flips. So we'll probably make about $25,000 each of those flips roughly. Nice. And then we'll reposition them into other properties. So it's always, a cont- it's an ever-evolving number, right? We'll sell yeah. some flips, we'll buy some properties and so on. And then we have 10 other units that are under construction right now. So they're almost done. They should be rented out shortly. And so really we're just talking about like 20 units. And they make around $10,000 per month and my portion, not including my partner's portions.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And you did that in 15 months. That's insane. Guys, yeah, I mean,
0: process. Oh yeah, it's, it's saying, a process. It's a, it's a process when you're starting with no money and trying to use other people's money. Can you build that up? Can you build that up if you start with a lot of money faster? Yes. But like when you're doing value add properties and doing renovations and a lot of burr strategies and... You're really minimizing your cash flow because you're having to refinance when you're trying to invest with other people's money. So it is possible. It probably takes longer than 15 months. I took a leap before I got there. Three years later, I'm really happy for it.
1: I feel like if you had to go about it one or one or two ways, I would prefer people go about it that way, though, instead of spend 10 years saving up like and then Mm -hmm. invest, I would rather like just be, because it's not about the resources, it's about the resourcefulness. So you are like, okay, like back against the wall, I'm going to figure this out. Come hell or high water, I'm out of this job. Like, how do I do this? And then now you have way better understanding of the entire deal flow and the entire deal process, right?
0: Yeah. And a lot of people try to worry about like, I hear all the time, what do I do after I have 10 loans? How do I even get another one? But I'm like, you don't even have your first property yet. Don't think about that.
1: (laughs) It's the same thing with videos. They're like, what if everyone hates the video? No one's going to see it. It's going to suck. It is going to (laughs) suck.
0: You're going to suck for
1: like a hundred videos.
0: I think that's what a lot of people get scared about is like, they're worried about step 20 when they haven't even taken step one. And I always tell people like, just take your step one. And it's not Im- not important what strategy you choose ultimately, like really just choose what market you choose. There's a lot of good markets out there. There's probably 50 markets that you could choose that would end up the exact same way. The more important thing is that you just choose one.
1: Yeah. And Alex Ramosi had a great quote that you and I were talking about him the other day, but he has a quote where he's, you're not really afraid of failure. You're just afraid of the uncertainty. He goes because yeah. if you knew that you were forty-seven no's or four hundred and seventy no's away from the yes that changes your life, you wouldn't mind the no's. If you knew you were yeah. thirty bad dates away from that thirty-first date being like the love of your life, you'd gladly go on those other dates. He's like, so it's mm-hmm. not the fear of failure that's really messing you up. It's just the fear, the fear of uncertainty. You don't see the finish line. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it's just if you just do the right stuff repeatedly. The good stuff will happen over and over again. So, what is the what's the journey? What's the vision for the next couple of years? What are you working on that scares the absolute hell out of you?
0: <laughs> it's really it's building this out of state investor academy. I think it's again it's like I try to give back as much as I learn to the people who are behind me. And there's a lot of people who live in high cost of living areas who are, or who can't invest out of state or just are freaking scared to do it. And I really want to take away as many of the barriers as they can, as I can from them. So how can I introduce them to vetted team members? How can I help them pick a market in two steps instead of 10 steps? How can I connect them with the right investors who can help them walk through markets? That's kind of really what I'm working on. And I really feel like it'll be a big resource for anyone wanting to get started and trying to get past that like analysis paralysis if there's so many options and I don't know where to go so I think I remember a lot of that fear I'm only like three years ago I had zero I had nothing I had no knowledge and I remember so much of that fear so well and I think that is what will make it such a good resource is I can build it for who I was just a few years ago
1: yeah and it's it's really fulfilling it's yeah. more fulfilling than anything that you do, because now it's so cool to, in our community, we have about two, 300 now, and it's just, it's so cool watching people like win. And mm. it's in the beginning, it's like you win, and then you just become numb to it. You're like, oh, okay, I'm going to buy another 30 unit, 40 unit. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy that. I'm going to do yeah. this. And it's just, but then when it's other people, you're like, oh my God, you just bought your first four. Oh my God, you just got your first Airbnb. I yes. know.
0: <laughs> just two weeks ago, someone and it was someone responded to a newsletter, just a free newsletter. And it was like, I just put out some homework. I was like, This is this is everything I've learned. And if you want to take action, here's some homework. Let me know if you ever do the homework. And someone responded and said, I did your homework and I went under contract because of it. And I Let's was like, And it changes people's lives. You don't need 40 units to change your life. You need one or two or three. And it could set you up for however long in the future. It'll change your whole financial future. And then if you want to buy more, great. You have the skills to do it. But if I can get people from zero to one or one to three, that makes me happy because it's just giving them a shot. Get them on the ladder. They can climb up by themselves.
1: I love that. And it's really cool because... So this podcast goes out to thousands and thousands of people now. And it's like, you guys think... Shout out to all of you guys. You think that I hear about all of your wins, but no, I don't. All I do is make these podcasts for you guys. And then we send this out to all of you. I see thousands of you listen and you go do a bunch of cool stuff and I hear nothing about it. So please shoot me and solely DMs uh, on our Instagrams, letting us know what you learn from this and what actions you take from this, because I had this woman named Jamara Who I freaking love in the community. And she heard a podcast that I did with Sarah Weaver. Oh, I love
0: Sarah.
1: A year ago about Airbnbs. And she Mm -hmm. was like, she heard that and had never heard about that. And she went and bought like three Airbnbs from that podcast. And then I met her like a year later when she joined Action Academy, like the community. I was like, you did that like a year ago? I was like, I didn't even know that was happening.
0: Yeah, It's just like yeah.
1: every single podcast, every single video can like completely change someone's life. So solely yeah. on that note, if somebody needs to get their life changed and they're going to go follow your Instagram account, they're going to go follow you online, check out your community. Where do they find you?
0: Yeah. So me, it's Lattes and Lisa's, mostly on Instagram. And then if you're interested in out-of-state investing, we're actually hosting a free two-day summit in September. And so whether it's my page or at Out-of-State Investor Academy on Instagram, you can go over there. It'll be awesome. We have some really great speakers and it's completely free just to share more about how to invest in real estate out-of-state.
1: Amazing, guys. You heard it here first. Go check out the Instagram and go sign up. We'll have the link below to go apply for that. And with that, guys, that's the podcast.